Welcome to Breaking the Surface, where we break into a delicious beverage and also dive into the topic at hand. I'm one of your co-hosts, Taylor Kramer. I'm the owner and lead producer for Cold Shower Media. I'm Beth Milligan. I'm a journalist here in Traverse City. And I'm another friend. I am Anthony Weber, and I am a pastor and an ethics teacher, and I am something of a fashion icon when it comes to oversized sweaters. The point here is that we want to go beyond the talking points to get to the depths of what is happening in our world. It should also be said that this podcast is part of the Boardman Review Podcast Collective in collaboration with Cold Chart Media. The Podcast Collective aims to provide unique content curated by the Boardman Review, the creative culture and outdoor lifestyle journal of Northern Michigan. So today we are drinking a Wild Bill's root beer from Northwoods Soda, and we're taping this particular show in a morning, so we were looking for something a little non-alcoholic to get the day going on a Monday. Um, Northwoods Soda is a family-owned business out of Grand Traverse County. They've been making handcrafted soda syrup in the area for over 20 years, and Wild Bill's is kind of their flagship flavor. Um, I don't always drink a lot of soda. I don't really have a sweet tooth and it's, you know, soda's not the healthiest thing in the world, but I will say I do occasionally like, like on a hot summer day, just like having a root beer. Um, and their root beer is great. It's really delicious. It's so good. And yeah, I'm not a huge soda drinker either. Like I have a huge sweet tooth. It's almost problematic. <laughs> um, but I usually eat the sweets rather than drink them. This I I'm making the exception. It's really good. My son really likes root beers, so we've explored all kinds of root beers over the last couple of years, and this root beer is delicious. But they also do some other drinks, don't they? They do. They have a whole range, and they have them, like, you can find them all over northern Michigan. They're in different, you know, grocery stores, and even some of the restaurants have them on tap. They have a really good black cherry cream soda, which Ooh, I also okay. really like. Yep. Um, and they even offer some, like, diet versions of some of their sodas, so if you're a little calorie conscious, you can find those, too, but... Uh, yeah, I just uh, uh, kind of good old fashioned root beer is something I can always get behind. Yes, definitely. So thank you, Northwood Soda. Uh, welcome back to another episode of Breaking the Surface. I'm one of your co-hosts, Taylor Kramer, joined as usual by Beth Milligan and Anthony Weber. Hello, everybody. Hello. Morning, Taylor. Hey. So today we wanted to have a discussion. We're about a week removed from the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and there has been just a lot of really harsh imagery. And then there's also what I'm finding fascinating is statistics to back up uh, the disdain that that uh, people are having for this withdrawal and the way that it was carried out. I was, um, of course, seeing the images that came out right away of Afghani nationals falling off of airplanes or being packed heavily into them, um, babies being passed over fences to American or British soldiers, uh, just a lot of really heart-wrenching things. And then there's statistics too, saying that I think less than 25% of Americans are happy with the way the withdrawal has been playing out. Despite before the withdrawal, 70% of Americans were wanting U.S. forces to, to be removed from the country. So it's just really staggering seeing both of those things, both the images and the statistics and the polling kind of playing out that nobody's really happy about the way that this has gone. So I think it's important to have a discussion about it. What have you guys seen the last week or so? I think, yeah, if, for me, there's kind of two aspects to it that are 
interesting. There's the political component and there's like the humanitarian component. So from a humanitarian component, I don't think there's any question that it's a disaster. Um, it, it, I did, you know, the images that you're talking about, you know, literally bodies being found in the wheel wells of planes of people who tried were so desperate to get out ahead of the Taliban's advance. Um, that they were climbing into, you know, a certain death on a plane, just desperately clinging. I could not think of a more potent visual metaphor than an American plane taxiing down the runway as Afghani people desperately cling to it yeah. as it's leaving the country. Um, and and so my immediate um, heart has been with the people there, especially the women and girls. I just I don't after having been free of Taliban rule for the last 20 or 21 years to now face the prospect of having to go back under such a harsh regime and what the lost educational opportunities might be for them. Um, we're already hearing reports about the Taliban seizing young women and girls, you know, to be forced brides and setting women on fire. And it's just, it's, it's really heartbreaking. And then you have the whole other political side of it, which is, you know, whatever the follow is going to be for Biden and the way his administration handled it. Anthony, I think we all know, I've, I've always a big believer of regardless of your political beliefs, if you're a Democrat, you need to call out Democrats. And I think it was completely bungled. I, to, to not have expected the Taliban to advance as fast as they did is not something I can understand based on the intelligence they had and to not have a more carefully thought out evacuation plan so that we can make sure that interpreters and people who have risked their lives the last two decades helping us could get out. It just doesn't seem like we had any forethought about how to handle this in a smooth way. And I think now they're putting more resources back into it, but it feels a little bit too late, you know, too little too late. So it's going to be, I just think it's gonna be interesting to see what the followout of is it for Biden from here, even though it's not all his fault. I think it needs to be noted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's been interesting to see different articles coming out that have been tracing the issues in Afghanistan back over numerous administrations. Everything from why we went there in the first place to how we have at times released fighters. Um, I, I think the Trump administration released 5,000 fighters who are front and center right now. And I think the Obama administration also released a number of them. And so we, and for the fact of the matter, didn't we kind of start? Um, um, what's happening there right now in the sense of we worked with the Taliban, was it 20 or 30 years ago? Like, I believe the CIA had funded them because they were, they were helping us achieve some goals in Afghanistan. So oddly enough, there's a time we were allies. And at that time is when we kind of bolstered their, their strength. And then it went off the rails and now here we are. And it, it feels like there's plenty of blame to be placed all around in terms of politics. And so one thing I'm curious about from the two of you is what do you think it looks like to learn from this and going forward, create Middle East policy that is able to anticipate these things? I mean, it seems to me, and this is just kind of an armchair reader of things that have happened in the Middle East for years, that most of the stuff that we start with good intention usually doesn't end up where we hoped it would. Like there seems to be a pattern of things not bearing the fruit we had hoped. And I don't know if continuing to try to think we can do it is inside of insanity or if we're simply not learning what it looks like to help to be a present, the presence that brings about positive change in the world. Any thoughts on that? 
Well, I just think that um, from what I've been reading is that there was a lot of good done in those 20 years that we were there. I was listening to some different um, interviews from Afghani nationals who were saying there's just life has been so different um, this side of 2001 for us. There's been a lot of advances. Um, there's women in positions that they were never allowed to be in prior to. And so th- I think that there's hope in that. But it's really frustrating when you can you can point to some of the positive um, changes, not to say that we've done everything correctly in the 20 years that we were occupying or whatever, but um, that there were some positive changes that were made. And I think what might be most frustrating is that due to the nature of our exit, did we ruin all those positive things? Did we did we lose all the progress in, in the help that we may have been able to provide or were providing? Is that opportunity now lost? Yeah. And I think, you know, Biden to his credit, I don't think that this has been a popular argument, but I think it's true. You know, his position has been the fact that the Afghan government collapsed so quickly is just actually evidence of the fact that it was correct for us to withdraw because they weren't committed as a government to self-autonomous rule. Like they, they, you know, the president fled the country almost immediately. The Afghan army put up almost no resistance to the Taliban. Um, and so, I, and I think that did catch the U.S. off guard a little bit that they thought they would fight back a little bit more, or at least hold the t- Taliban back a little bit more than they did, where everyone just basically essentially abandoned their posts. And so Biden's position has been, look, this kind of proves like if they want to have their own nation, they're going to have to fight for it at some point. We can't just nation build is the term that he's been using and stay there forever. And I think that's true. I think, though, that then raises a question of then what the hell have we been doing there the, the mm-hmm. last 20 years? If our goal was never to nation build, and I don't really know what we did over the last two decades. And I think you've seen a lot of interesting articles coming forward from Afghanistan veterans, U.S. combat veterans who have been over there who feel disappointed and betrayed of like, what did we do? Like, what was my time there for? What was the goal of all of this? I think you could look at a positive like Taylor mentioned that at least maybe while we were there, there was some stability of daily life, especially for women and girls that they didn't have before. And that may be significant enough. I mean, there were have been some interesting stories like the uh, girls robotics team that had formed in Afghanistan during this U S occupation. And then they were able to be evacuated and flee the country. Like the fact that those girls had access to that opportunity and had that education while we were there, they're going to go on and live, you know, lives. And hopefully that will give them a path that they didn't or might not have had under Taliban rule. So maybe there is still some good that comes out of it, but I do think to Anthony's point, it raises this huge philosophical question of why were we there to begin with and why do we seem to keep making the same foreign policy mistakes over and over yeah. again? So considering the idea that we might have known that the structure within Afghanistan was not strong enough to be self-supporting, or at least we wanted to find out if it was, uh, it, it seems like the wise thing that we could have done, and this is where the Biden administration is getting a lot of just criticism is, okay, then now let's do a timeline. Six months, nine months, you get American citizens out. You get the people who have worked with America out because you know they're being targeted. Even an opportunity for the Afghani Christians, which as a pastor, I've been following that story. Hmm. Afghani Christians registered a number of years ago with Afghanistan. Hmm. 
Even though I believe Christianity is technically illegal, it was almost like kind of a blue law where the, the Afghani government was not going after Christians. So a number of years ago, Afghani pastors decided they would register with the government, which is what the government wanted them to do. And they were doing it as kind of a gesture of goodwill, partly, but also we want to come out of hiding. We want to pass on a legacy to our kids that we are not ashamed and we're not afraid. And the the um, venue in the country, the the vibe in the country was such that they were able to do that with very little negative results. Well, now though, there's a database. Yeah. And so now the Taliban's in power. They're literally getting letters and phone calls that say, we know who you are. We know where you live and we are coming for you. Mm-hmm. And all these pastors have gone into hiding. Uh, okay. Those would have all been good things to think about ahead of time. Uh, yeah. Pastors, would you like a chance to relocate? That I feel if if this whole timeline were different and there had simply been a methodical opportunity for people to get out of Afghanistan who wanted to get out. And then I might add the United States and other nations have a generous policy of helping make those people who wanted to leave feel accepted. I think we'd be having an entirely different conversation. Mm -hmm. If, If it felt like those who remain in Afghanistan in some sense wanted to be there and I get um, especially if you're a woman or a child in Afghanistan, you don't have the voice and the power. But if you at least give ample opportunity for those who wanted to leave to leave, whatever arises from um, from whatever was built there or collapsed and is being rebuilt, would at least in some sense feel a little bit like it was owned or wanted. And I know that's generous words um, in a culture where lots of people are oppressed, but uh, I don't know. There are people who voluntarily stayed behind instead of being trapped, which is a big difference. And I think one of the things that I have found challenging about the politicization of this issue has been, Taylor mentioned at the beginning of the show, the survey results Mm -hmm. of how like Americans feel about it. And I guess my question is like, do you feel upset about it because like it's a political win, you know, like it's, it's something that you can pin on Biden and be like, okay, here's a great thing that I can blame the Biden administration for. And especially if you're a politician, great to, to seize on that. If you're in the Republican party and be like, look, this is all Biden's fault. So if it's just about a political win, okay. But if you are upset because of the humanitarian aspect that you truly feel compassion for the people who have been left behind, and this is, you know, I've, then we should have a generous policy and we should be resettling Afghani refugees here because we're responsible for the mess (laughs) that they're in. And We've seen that that, though, however you feel about the bungling of the evacuation, a lot of Americans are also resistant for the xenophobic reasons that were resistant about a lot of refugees, mm-hmm. about them coming here. And you even had people like Tucker Carlson using very pointed language about like, well, great. Now you're going to have Afghani refugees in your neighborhood. And I'm like, great. I, mm-hmm. I would love yeah. to have them in my neighborhood. I would welcome them. I think I think, in fact, the governor of Utah sent an open letter yeah. to the Biden administration, which I thought. Yeah. You know, that sometimes to me is like kind of a known Mormon state, not a Christian state, but that is like religion at its best. That kind of open compassion of like, we'll, we'll take them. We would welcome them them here. And that's something I've always struggled with, with a lot of neoconservatism mixed in with religion is this sort of fear of the other fear of the refugee and the orphan and the widow, which is completely antithetical to what 
you know, to biblical teaching. So yeah, hospitality is a Christian virtue. Mm-hmm. It should, it should be, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it should be. And I, and I feel a responsibility, not just from religious perspective, so much as an American that if we create masses and we're responsible for cleaning them up, especially when other people's lives are at stake. My hope for this, as we've watched these events unfold in, in really a negative way, and we're asking how could this have been done better? Or how can we move forward from here? Um, people had a, have a very unique connection to these circumstances because all of us know people that have served over there. Mm-hmm. Um, we may even know people that have died over there. And so for me, the, the things I didn't realize, um, cause I think it can be very easy to fall into this trap of thinking like the U S was over there. We were doing all the heavy lifting. We were fixing everything for them. We were providing weaponry. We were doing the bulk of the fighting. Um, there was no single year where Afghanistan didn't lose more soldiers than we lost in the entire war. Mm-hmm. They lost something like 22 times more people than we did fighting over there. And so um, I think those are interesting things to, to kind of keep perspective is if we're over there and in a lot of cases they were um, standing up for themselves and fighting alongside us. Um, what do we then owe them if we kind of pulled out prematurely or in a inappropriate way Um, I, I do feel like we should be welcoming them. And that's the, I think the second half of this conversation that people are going to have to have is like, okay, now what, you know, how are you going to respond if they're, if they're coming to your state or to your country? It is interesting. And I think, you know, I think this, again, Biden definitely bungled it and should have had a plan. Like, uh, Anthony was describing it. I, I, I appreciate that he didn't sort of, I think the phrasing he used was pass the buck, you know, to another president. I think whoever was ultimately in power in the white house, when this evacuation happened would have had a mess on their hands. Yeah, I agree. And, and so it is a little bit unfair. And of course, you know, Trump really set up with this Taliban treaty, uh, put, put, put the Biden administration in a pretty untenable position um, in terms of kind of forcing their hand. But whoever was overseeing it would have, would have had some political mess to deal with. And I think what's unfortunate now is, is like looking at what comes next, you are going to, you know, clearly the Taliban is taking a stronghold back of the country. I don't think the images that we're going to see coming out of Afghanistan in the next year or years are going to be any better than what we're seeing now. In fact, it's probably going to get markedly worse. And, and potentially, you know, if it becomes a whole breeding ground again for the next generation wave of terrorists, it, if at some point there's a, a, an attack on the U.S. or a U.S. ally from someone who is part of the Taliban in Afghanistan, like that is also going to get blamed on, you know, whoever's in office. And I just think it's important rather than the, the short sighted, short term blame of mm-hmm. one administration to really be thinking about the contributions of multiple past administrations, both Democrat and Republican to the situation. And also to our larger, to Anthony's point, our larger pattern of a country of um, being uh, overly involved, let's say, in global affairs. Mm -hmm. I wonder what kind of chilling effect it's going to have also in our allies in the Middle East, because they're watching this unfold and going, wait a minute, people put their lives on the line to help you. And then you left and now they're getting killed as traitors. Who's to say you're not going to pull out of our country? Why should we help you if we're going to put our lives on the line like that? And I, I think the U.S. has its work cut out in establishing assurance in the other countries where we still are heavily invested so that people actually believe that we've got their back. 
Yeah. Like, uh, is the U S a, a good friend? You know, if you, if you see someone stabbing someone else in the back or kind of betraying or letting someone down, you have to think like, mm, is that, is that going to happen to me in the future? Okay. So here's another interesting side story in China. There's the group of Muslims and I forget their names. The one Uyghurs. the Uyghurs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, my understanding is that China is concerned because now that the Taliban is in power, they're a little worried that Afghanistan is going to be making a move to kind of rescue or take care of them. Mm. And I don't know if you saw, but China has been talking already with the leaders of the Taliban, like trying to create some type of uh, partnership. Oh, wow. So I'm really curious what's going to come from that. Well, and I think you and I, I feel like you and I have had a conversation sometime in the past, Anthony, about why people are drawn to terrorism to begin with. And a lot of times, you know, they're praying, and this has been true even in the U S with white domestic terrorism, but you know, you're preying on people who feel isolated, who feel alone, oftentimes young men who don't really know their identities or their place in their communities. And it's very easy to like radicalize people who have been marginalized or harmed or mm-hmm. not taken seriously in that way. And if China is worried about that, I think it's because China has been ridiculously oppressive to the Uyghur community. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, those hens might come home to roost because you, you know, you, you were deliberately oppressing a minority group. And a lot of, you know, if you ever just look into the situation of what they do for surveillance and torture and holding people prisoner and separating them from their families. Yeah. That might radicalize people Mm -hmm. (laughs) into joining a group where they do feel welcomed and they do feel heard. Yeah. Yeah. That is very interesting, especially the comparison to some of the domestic terrorism that we've seen over here. So here's, okay. So this is kind of a larger question. I guess I'm curious about is I'm curious what you guys think about the U S's role and responsibility abroad. Like this has been an ongoing conversation in our country for, you know, 300 years or whatever. So that, you know, especially in the, in the 1900s during the cold war, we had this like approach where it's like, we are going to contain um, communism wherever we think it's going to be a threat in the world. And and what that did is just meant the U S was always perpetually at, at risk of being at war, whether it was in Korea or Afghanistan. I think that we were talking about earlier, that was with Soviet threat there. So, you know, giving weapons to the Taliban, it's just, we were, you know, going all over South America, Asia, wherever we thought there was going to be a communist threat, helping topple, you know, democratic regimes, installing our own autocrats that we felt we could control. And even with the ending of the Cold War, we're now doing a similar thing, but protecting oil interests. So always trying to like maintain our energy interests abroad. Uh, and I just wonder what you guys think personally about either our over active involvement overseas to protect our own interests, like our economic interests with oil or this idea of a more lofty humanitarian intervention, like the U S is often criticized, for example, for its failure to act in Rwanda. Like, should we have done something there? How do you balance, you know, and and you've got different presidents like Trump is saying America first, we need to stop getting so extended overseas. What do you guys think about like, when is the right time for us to intervene in another country's affairs? Simple question, Beth. Just really like, please. I, I'm sure one of you has the answer. It's only going to take a minute. Yeah. Go, go Taylor. Take all the right. first 30 seconds. No, I'll just state how confused I am because um, we had, I think we had mentioned on earlier episode how hard it is to grasp, grasp, but try to get a grasp on international politics. And it's really hard to try to picture like, what should our involvement be in places 
on the map that we don't really even know where they are, particularly really small countries um, that we don't know anything about. And I think that this is providing a moment of introspection because we are so close to Afghanistan in terms of how many troops have spent time over there. It's been, I'm 31 years old. I was 11 when the World Trade Center went down. And so for two thirds of my life, we have been occupying that area over there. And it just seems kind of normal. And to now, as we see this withdrawal, I think that it can provide the level of introspection of like, this is how this is how bad things can go when we don't act, you know, appropriately or have a have a well carried out plan after we've been involved in certain places. My heart tends to lean really heavily towards humanitarian efforts. If I see injustices, even if it's across um, across the world, while it can be difficult for me to grasp uh, because I'm not familiar with those cultures or, or the area or whatever it might be. Um, I feel such a strong sense of justice that I personally wouldn't mind if we went over there and got involved in order to, to save lives and provide um, better opportunities for people. But it, it, it's frustrating because while I want that, I can't even decide politically like with my neighbor, we can't agree on so many things. And so to, to maybe undertake some of those efforts is just really complicated uh, when we have so much infighting in our own country. Uh, I have a lot of mixed emotions and opinions about it. Cause like Taylor said, I think it's incredibly complicated. There's a reason I'm not in international relationships <laughs> and things like that. Um, one thing that comes to my mind is that the West ha- and this isn't unique to the West, but I grew up in the, in the Western world. So I just know this about the Western world. There's a history of kind of this, nation building slash imperialism slash manifest destiny that if you're not careful, you're coercing the rest of the world to be just like you. And it's not necessarily the right fit for the rest of the world. A practical distinction would be between individualistic cultures and community-based cultures. There's just a very different way of approaching a lot of things in life. And life just isn't going to look the same in those two places. And if you grow up in an individualistic country like the United States, we value individualism almost above all else. Let's say you try to go to another country where some terrible things are happening and you try to create an individualistic-based country, I think it's going to fail you'd have to find a way to be present in a communal based. What's the word I'm looking for there, but people who think in terms of community rather than individualism Mm -hmm. and find a way to address those issues through the framework of the people who live there. And that I think might be where we struggle when we go out into the world is that, you know, if you have a hammer, everything looks like, looks like a nail. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think there's something to be said for trying to figure out how do we go to places and help them to solve particularly human rights issues, but in a way that points them toward a solution that naturally fits with the kind of culture and community and history that they have. That is, I think, a remarkably complicated thing to figure out, but I suspect that's why we often go into places, think we have fixed things, and then we leave and nothing has changed because it wasn't a nail that needed to be hit Mm -hmm. (laughs) and all we had was a hammer. And um, so we leave and then we go, why didn't it work? Well, because our solution didn't actually match the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like there's like this assumed superiority in the United States, like going back to its founding of that we have sort of hit on the 
ideal form of government and civilization and often religion with tying in Christian ethos into it. And then it's like, like Anthony is kind of saying, then the danger then is like, you're, you're going around and imposing this model onto everyone else. And like, first of all, what gives you the right to do that? And second of all, what substantiates your claim to superiority versus someone else's cultural or religious approach. And the danger of it, I think is that when you ignore cultures and ignore what you're getting into and just try to take the same cookie cutter model and put it on each country, that sort of arrogance of like, we'll, we'll get there and we'll figure it out and we'll just make it work. Like leads to things like Vietnam, you know, where it's just like, it's such an arrogance that is so disconnected from the reality of that country or that place or culture. And then we just sort of bungle around for a couple of years and screw everything up and lose lots of people, our people, other people's people, and then come back and we're like, Oh, but then we never seem to like you said earlier, Anthony never seemed to learn from it. And I think the more like I'm thinking about it, like when you are a superpower like the United States, it's not that I don't think you should ever be involved in global affairs. First of all, there's no, you know, with the Internet and with the interconnection of our economies, there's no separation that we are part of a global, uh, you know, system in the world. And so we can't be truly isolationist. But I do sort of like the. In terms of defending our uh, interests, I like the Teddy Roosevelt thing of like walk softly and carry a big stick. Like you, we know we have this military might. We don't always have to be going around flexing mm-hmm. that muscle. I think we're trying to be overly involved. But the other thing is like I, I'm with you, Taylor. I'm much more humanitarian oriented. And like, for example, I do think we should have acted in Rwanda. I think my thing is going back to our assumed superiority and arrogance that not only with our combat and military approach, but with our humanitarian approach, we're still always using our model (laughs) and forcing it on it. So you see this a lot with charities that like work in Africa, for example, where you have some U.S. charities that do it really well because they're on the ground, they're part of the community, they know what that community needs. And then you have others who just like ship boxes of Nike shirts over and it's like they just sit in a garage, you know, Mm because like this is not what this community needs. Or they ruin the local seamstress's job because now nobody needs her to make clothes. Right, right. So just sort of thoughtlessly being like, the image that always comes to mind for me is like Trump tossing like paper dolls at people, Mm -hmm. you know, after the hurricane. I think that actually kind of is emblematic of what we do a lot which was just show up and dump stuff on people. We don't ask questions. We don't have humility. We don't engage with what they really need. And I think maybe a good standard for when we should intervene is when our help is wanted (laughs) or asked for, you know, people in Rwanda were begging for help during that genocide. Mm -hmm. Um, The Afghani people are begging for help, but there's a lot of times where we just kind of show up and we're like, what you need is some Christianity. Mm -hmm. And they're like, no, no, we're good. We're actually, we need food. We do need some food, but like, we don't need this whole Western model. So Mm That's what I would like to see. I would like to see us use our resources and power for good when it is wanted and sought and done in collaboration with who we're helping. Yeah, that really helps to shape what I, yeah, where I want to land now, which is I want to to be the country that can help, but I want us to be flexible enough to be the tool that's needed, I guess, in that specific situation, rather than like you said, this cookie cutter approach that we have. And so if it's a situation like Rwanda, where there's protection that's needed like immediately just to simply save lives. Or if in this case, a nuanced withdrawal is what was needed. Um, those are kind of two different things. And and just to have that flexibility, if we are going, I think it's something we owe the world. If we are so powerful, 
don't we owe these other countries that we're going to intervene in the flexibility to help them with what they actually need? I think Mm -hmm. that's the question. Yeah. The humanitarian side of it is really compelling to me. So I'm going to go back to even something like Iraq. Um, Okay. So let's just run with the assumption that this was an attempt to free a people from a megalomaniac, a dictator who was terrible. Okay. (laughs) Let's not get, yeah, let's just assume that for the sake of our conversation. And not oil. Okay. And not ahead. oil. <laughs> um, it, it would seem to me that perhaps one way to go about this that would step into humanitarian crises, but stop short of trying to morph a nation into a particular thing, like the cookie cutter model type of thing, is to, to go there and go, okay, now that we are here, we have paused the atrocities that are happening. And there's no doubt Saddam and his sons were doing terrible things to people. Uh, now, we have a time frame. Those of you who would like to leave Iraq and resettle somewhere else, we will help you do that. Then those of you who remain, then you can work with something. You've given an opportunity for the people most impacted by what's going on to, to get out, if that's what they want to do is get out. And recognizing they'd probably prefer to stay where they've always lived, if life could be better, but give the opportunity. And then you go through the process of trying to help the nation. And Iraq, I think is a good example, restructure, reorganize, get more representation into their leadership from all the different kind of parties and factions. And then maybe before you hand it over going once again, okay, if you don't like where it's at, we will help you resettle so that there is a sense of those who have stayed, what was the word you used earlier? Um, not voluntarily versus being trapped. Yeah. Yeah. Voluntarily Rwanda. Okay. Yes. Rwanda is a great example. And I think the UN had quite a few peacekeeping forces there, but even they struggled to keep the peace. Okay. What does it look like for the rest of the world to open up and go, if you need to leave, we will help you find a place where you won't be killed. Mm -hmm. Then those who remain, let's figure out how to do this. Some process where the goal is always to step in to address the issue and then step back out. But making sure from the start to finish of that process that people are having some agency about where we'd like to be in this process. Now, I get it. That is a lot of money. That's um, a lot of time, a lot of resources. It's all of those things. But I just keep coming back to places like hotspots around the world where we as a nation have been for a long, long time it almost seems inevitably that it doesn't pan out the way we want it to. And then, like you said, whether it's people who were boots on the ground fighting in those places, well, especially them because they've paid quite a cost. They look at it and go, what were we doing? What was this all for? And yeah, shortening that time frame and just being real purposeful in what we're doing of focusing on humanitarian crises, helping people have agency to decide what to do with their lives. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I am, there's a reason I'm not on committees that solve these kind of problems. Yeah. I have a quote here from an article from uh, David French. He's at the dispatch.com and he had served in Iraq. So he was doing his best to kind of share similarities maybe um, and relate to those that had served in Afghanistan, but, but was understanding that there were differences there, but he was talking about sacrifice and um, he said, the purpose of sacrifice is not transactional. In other words, a sacrifice does not become worth it only if that sacrifice yields immediate tangible returns with greater returns necessary to justify a greater sacrifice. Instead, a virtuous sacrifice is transcendent. It's an expression of duty and faith that has enduring power. And that power is often not fully perceived within our lifetimes. And um, so I was just going over that and thinking, 
we talked about some of the positive things that have maybe come from our presence in Afghanistan and just hoping that some of that will, will remain in the future, even if it's not immediately clear here in 2021. So I thought that was just a kind of an interesting take on it. I hate to prematurely speak about hope, but I had been listening to, again, different interviews. And there were some people who um, were in Afghanistan and were like, as soon as I get the email that I'm approved to leave this country, I'm leaving. As soon as I know there's a spot on a plane, I am out of here, never coming back. And then there's other people who are like, I've gotten a taste of things that have never been here before. I, the last 20 years were, were great. There were opportunities that I've never seen in my lifetime before, and they want to see those again. And so they understand that they're going to have to endure some hardships, but they are I guess, willing to do that because they want to see these opportunities take place on their um, land rather than coming, you know, maybe to America and seeking opportunities elsewhere. I thought that that was interesting because you're always going to have kind of two sets of people. And I don't think there's necessarily a wrong answer. Yeah. And I, you know, to me, when I think about the the cost of our entanglements overseas. It's, it's so much, it's so much in the, the loss of human life. It's so much in the psychological suffering and PTSD that those who serve on the front lines go through. It's so much in military spending. I mean, billions and billions and billions of dollars to be in a place like Afghanistan for two decades. And so when Anthony was mentioning like, you know, the expense of let's say a resettlement program, it's like, to me, the the most important thing we could be doing is offering people who are in oppressive or genocidal governments an opportunity to come somewhere safe, like the United States. And I don't accept that we don't have the resources to do that or that it poses some existential threat to the United States to welcome people from other terrible, you know, suffering situations, because one, we have a total labor, labor shortage in the United States. There's no shortage of jobs for people to, to fill here, but two, we have money and resources. We're just choosing to pool them into, you know, maintaining a combat presence in these countries instead of like focusing on resettlement program where there's like a stipend for refugees. And the reason I think an approach like that would work and why it would be so beneficial for the U S to overhaul its immigration and refugee program and make it easier for people to obtain citizenship here is not just that I think it's the best relief option because you're not mandating people to resettle if they want to come. I think you should provide them a path. But two, then like you're you're doing some kind of community building with those countries and with those people that I think would be so beneficial to the United States long term. Because right now, I think our approach, treating everything like a nail and you're a hammer is just fostering all this resentment around the world towards the U.S. about these bungled situations that we go in where we're just clumsy and arrogant and strong arming everything instead of being a country that leads with humility and acceptance and grace and love. And like that image of the United States is something I think a lot of us want to see that shining city on the hill, that ideal of America I would love to see it be that way. And I think it would actually be in our national security interest to have that kind of goodwill and respect mm-hmm. around the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but we seem so reluctant as a people. We don't seem to mind to get involved over and over and spend billions of dollars and, and waste our soldiers' lives in these countries. But we so seem so reluctant and xenophobic about letting those people into our country. And I think it would benefit us and them to do that. Yeah, I that's what I wish for our country as well. And it's, um, 
it might be a lot to ask. We, we share borders with countries where people are at times literally being hacked apart by the cartel. And we can't seem to understand why they might want to cross the fence over here to the piece of dirt that I'm on. And, um, those are the things that I guess I find most disheartening when we have conversations like this is these American ideals of, yeah, I want people, I want success for everybody, but, um, I don't want to have to go out of my way to help people find that success. And I don't even want to offer a piece of the dirt that I'm on to those people in many cases too. And so I think if we can, we have to find a way to figure out, you know, how accepting are we going to be to refugees and immigrants? Because that in itself is a very contentious point that people just cannot agree on. Like what level of help are we, are we going to provide? Some people are very willing to, to provide a lot of help and support and other people just seem to think that, um, they'll survive and they should find success on their own. It shouldn't involve spending any time over here. I was just going to say, coming back to, I think what both of you are saying, I really do prefer any approach that is nonviolent, if at all possible. Mm -hmm. And that can include economic incentives or economic punishments, depending on what nations are doing. It can evolve figuring out what resettlement programs look like. There, I feel like there's lots of ways in which we could exercise our power in the world in a way that incentivizes rather than coerces. And I get there, there are some situations and Rwanda is such a good example. Like there are times you just have to go in and stop people from killing other people. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, but if there is a way in which you can make the good compelling, um, I, I, I prefer that kind of approach for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe as I, I think we're probably wrapping up here, but the reason I think this is so important to wrestle with is I can see that it's going to get worse. And I think part of the reason it's going to get worse is because of the climate. So, you know, part of this arrogance of ours and how we think about refugees is the assumption that we'll never be refugees. Mm -hmm. Right. So we think as Americans, like our country is like, number one, we're always going to like be in a good place. We're never going to be at the mercy of another country to show us compassion. But we have no idea like what the future holds for this country. We have no idea if we could be obliterated by a nuclear attack or by chemical warfare or, you know, the technology trend taking down our grid. We have no idea what could happen. And we do know and we're seeing the effects of climate change unfolding in real time in this country right now with droughts and hurricanes and crazy storms. And I talk to farmers every day who are thinking that the farming that they've done here in Northern Michigan for decades is not going to be sustainable in the coming years. It's going to, the climate's moving more and more North and making it hard for us to grow food here. We're at the center of the um, freshwater basin in the U S there's going to be fights over that. So I just think we have to be prepared for the reality that in the coming decades with short of, you know, major global intervention and in climate, which doesn't look realistic right now, that we're just going to see the effects of it unfold. And I think the effects are going to be many, many, many more refugees around the world fleeing areas where it's no longer livable because of rising waters or temperatures or lack of access to food or water. And that can include parts of the United States. I was going to say, we're going to see relocation <laughs> in the U.S. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think Florida and the South, especially and out West where they're, where they're already dealing with drought and wildfires. So I just think it's really good um, to throw in a little golden rule thing here too. It's not just um, 
it's not just altruism, I guess, in how we treat other countries. It's the recognition that we are part of a global community and may also someday come to need the compassion and support of our neighbors around the world and not just always be in a benefactor position ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's an important view to hold and just as maybe the word help is something that help or assistance or whatever um, comes to mind. I think about times in my own life where it's like, when I need help, I start to rationalize like, you know, Hey, you're just, it's just one bad day. You just need a little, a little bit of a nudge here. And then you'll get back on your own feet and be able to handle your own business. And then when other people need help, oftentimes it's a man, they're, they're lazy. They made poor decisions. They did all these things. And, um, so I just, I, I would ask people just to eva- reevaluate maybe how you view, um, helping other people and, and particularly maybe your stance on things like refugees and immigration. Um, and, um, I think that if we are going to, to meddle overseas as often as we do, that we should be able to provide some different avenues of assistance to people. I think that's maybe a really good way to wrap up the show. It seems like a good note to end on. It works for me. 